BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Ah, little lad, you're staring at my fingers. Would you like me to tell you the little story of right hand, left hand? The story of good and evil? Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris, and I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a writer, producer, and host here in San Diego, California, and Really excited to be diving into this movie, Steve. 90 minutes of absolute horror uh, that uh, neither of us had seen before we decided to do this as an episode for The Cinephiles, thanks to an urging from one of our patrons. That's right. This is a this is a Cinephiles first in many, many ways. And one of them is what you just said, which is not only that we've done films before where you had never seen it yeah. or where I had never seen it. We have never done a film where both of us came to it absolutely fresh. Mm. And the and the other thing that's unique about this is that we are doing this for a unique reason, which is as we recently redid all of our Patreons, we created one tier that was above and beyond all the others because we wanted to give people an opportunity if they really, really wanted us to do a particular film to enter the billion-dollar box office smash level. And pay us $500 to do a film of their choice, assuming it was a film that we actually wanted to do. Exactly. That's always the caveat. Yeah. And Kevin Robinson and his wife, Shabon Raupak, decided to take us up on it for one of their all-time favorite films that they said they absolutely were desperate to hear the cinephiles talk about. And that film is The Night of the Hunter, directed by Charles Lawton. The great Charles Lawton. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, because this is such a unique situation, we wanted to welcome the yeah. very first members of the billion dollar box office smash tier of the cinephiles. <laughs> Kevin and Siobhan, welcome to the cinephiles. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. And before we get, talk about the movie that you guys selected, we would love to hear where are you from and how did you first come to the Cinephiles? So uh, we are from, uh, I am from Canada, uh, British Columbia, Canada. That's where we live now. I'm from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, Respect. Hey -o. <laughs> there we go. Um, so uh, we actually met in San Francisco for our master's in music. So we're both musicians. And our first date was a movie. It's a Woody Allen movie, but that's okay, whatever. <laughs> um, so in our relationship, we've always enjoyed movies. And we went and saw a screening of 2001, A Space Odyssey. And that was my first time seeing it. 
And after I watched the movie, I was desperate to find more information about the movie, how it was made. I just felt like I needed community to talk to people about the movie. So I searched podcasts um, on iTunes and the Cinephiles podcast was one of the first ones that came up and I saw it was a large uh, three-part about the movie, listened to it and was really impressed and amazed at the level of detail that was put into the podcast about all of your guys' thoughts and opinions and behind the scenes. And um, subsequently, uh, Kevin and I, we listened to most of your guys' back catalog. And uh, especially during the pandemic, it's been a great way for us to, you know, watch a movie, whatever you guys are watching that week, and then listen to it and talk about it. And it's just provided continuous, ongoing, enjoyable discussions for us in our relationship. So thank you guys. That's fantastic. That's great. Yeah. Thank you for taking, thank you for taking us along with you during the pandemic. (laughs) So, we are very, very curious. Yeah. What made you so passionate about the Night of the Hunter that you wanted to hear it on the Cinephiles? So, the Night of the Hunter is one of my favorite movies, and I feel that it is a wonderful movie that is um, very underseen, and a lot of people don't know about it, even though you know it is on some best of lists and it is a Criterion movie. But even some film goers that are film buffs don't know it. For me, the first memory that I have of it was I was on a plane to London when I was about 10 or 11, and they were playing it on the plane, um, and I didn't have um, the headphones in, but I saw um, the images, and I remember being really struck by some of the images and being kind of creeped out by what I was seeing or intrigued. Um, and I'm, then I kind of forgot about it for a while, but then when I got into film, when I was a little older in college, I found it on a list and revisited it. And the images that I saw when I was really young, they really still stuck with me. And what I love about the movie is it's so unique. It's such a strange little movie. It sort of feels kind of out of time. It's sort of like surrealist fairy tale it kind of feels both modern and old at the same time and Robert Mitchum's performance is so wonderful and and scary and layered a lot of the shots like I said are just so beautiful to look at you could pause the movie at any point and um, use one of the shots as um, a photo uh, to hang in your wall yeah I just I, I enjoy a lot of things that are kind of gothic um I enjoy kind of the fairy tale aspect of it. Like it's told through the children's eyes. And I like a lot of stories with children where, you know, they're the only ones that know uh, what's going on and the adults don't listen to them. So I, I kind of enjoy that aspect of it as well. And it's an underseen movie that I really enjoy. And I wish that more people would know about it and, it's unfortunate that it's not as well known as it should be. Well, hopefully we'll do that uh, mm-hmm. with this podcast. But Steve, 11 or 12, I mean, this is our first time watching it. We're adult men and we were uh, scared out of our minds. So I can't even imagine watching it 11 or 12 mm-hmm. on an airplane with no dialogue and yeah. just seeing the images yeah. and how that might strike you. My God, Steve. 
I mean, I wonder if actually you got lucky because yeah. there's so many people that have stories that are like the, my parents took me to Jaws when I was five or I saw Alien when I was seven and it scarred me for life. And maybe because you didn't have the sound, you got to appreciate the visuals without quite getting freaked out. Right, the filmmaking, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Kevin, I would love to hear, how did you first come to this film? Um, well, you might not be surprised to know I came through it through my wife. <laughs> uh, she wanted to watch it <laughs> a couple of years ago and we watched it together and I really loved it. Um, I think what has stuck with me is I kind of dismissed the ending the first time I saw it. I thought it was very, almost like an Aesop, just like, okay, Hey, everything's fine. Uh, but we, we, we just watched it again and I, I understood a lot more of what the movie was trying to say about children and about the way children see the world and the way adults interact with them. And just like the interaction of the biblical fables and how religion is part of people's lives, but they understand it in different ways than children do. And for me, just makes this wonderful mix of a movie, of course, with the imagery, which, I mean, what can you say more about it? I mean, it's just beautiful. Even when the images are so uh, in your face, like when he's like a Frankenstein monster chasing them up the stairs, like it could it be more clear, right? But it just works so well. I understand that it wasn't just that you loved this movie, but you wanted to us to explore it as kind of part of a celebration of a big change that's happened in your life. Do you want to explain sort of what's happened here? Yes. So um, we have an eight-week-old baby, our first child together. And um, this uh, was a gift uh, from Kevin uh, asking you guys to do this podcast as a present uh, for having the baby, which was a wonderful present. And I feel that upon this last rewatch, a lot of the themes about children and how they see the world and children in peril... Uh, now that I'm a parent, that really is hitting home a lot harder than it did uh, when I saw it previous times. So, Well, and I really respect that your way of honoring your new life is to explore, you know, children being terrified and almost <laughs> murdered. I think that's really, really appropriate. <laughs> but ultimately, ultimately getting away. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's a, a positive. So it's okay. yeah. <laughs> but congratulations to you both. That's fantastic. Thank that's you. Fantastic. Well. Thank you both so much for your support of the show. And I have an even bigger thank you, which is that, as I think we've said, neither John nor I had ever seen this film. Yeah. And so this was, and that's never happened on the Cinephiles before. And this was such an incredible treat to see for the first time knowing nothing about it. I'm so glad that you guys were able to watch it and that um, now I get to hear your thoughts on it because... I've been at wondering for years. I keep going like, when are they going to do this movie? They'll probably never do it. So, so I, when, when you guys did um, uh, the Spike Lee month, um, mm. you know, you, uh, you know, you're talking about the love and the hate thing, and I was thinking, I'm like, yeah, they've never done Night of the Hunter. I mean, it seems like such a cinephile's film. <laughs> it really is. It really I mean, is. There's so many movies you can do. So. But yeah, I'm very excited. I can't wait to hear your guys' thoughts on it. So wonderful. Well, thank you. And everyone out there listening, you too can become members of the Billion Dollar Box Office Smash Cinephiles Club if there's a movie you are desperate to hear John and I talk about. This is, as you said, it's a first. 
But this is a good way, good film for us to do a first on, a classic like this one. And it gave me an excuse to open up the Criterion Collection version of this that I had bought months ago uh, during one of their sales. And I had always been itching to watch and to have it come at a perfect time to watch it. Uh, considering what's going on in our world, I think there's a, a bit of kismet involved here or serendipity to get us to watch this film at this time because there is so much that goes on in this film that we see happening in our world today It's in larger formats, which is kind of crazy to think about. Dude, I got to say, this was such a treat for me. This was an experience. I, I really had an experience that I haven't had in forever because it's not just that I had never seen the film. Right. I literally knew nothing about it other oh. than I had heard the name. I knew it was Charles Lawton. Right. I knew that the love hate thing that we see in Do the Right Thing came yeah. from here. I knew, you know, I knew Robert Mitchum was in it. I didn't know what it was about at all. Oh, wow. And so when I sat down to watch, and I, and I decided, like, normally my process is sort of different because we're mostly doing films that I've seen before. Right. So I really just start right into kind of the research. And I didn't do that this time. I started in, I'm just going to sit and watch this movie. <laughs> I'm not going to have a keyboard. I'm just going to watch Smart. it. Yeah. And this movie continually went places that I did not expect. I was like, mm -hmm. I did. Oh, this is about that. Oh, wow. It's about that. Oh my God. You know, like it really continued to surprise me. It was genuinely scary yeah. and, and upsetting. And it also was in terms of the filmmaking, mm -hmm. a totally unique film. So I, I so thrilled that Kevin and Siobhan asked us to do this because it, it gave me this amazing experience. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I mean, the thing that's fascinating when you watch the movie, and this was, by the way, I think Skyhir Du Cinema are the ones who kind of reawakened the reappreciation or awakened the reappreciation for this film and even listed it right behind Citizen Kane yeah. as number two of the greatest films ever made. And when you watch this movie, you can easily just kind of get lost in the fact that it's a pretty simple, straightforward film. But Charles Lawton as a director is doing some incredible stuff here, using silent movie techniques, using um, the modern techniques that were on at the time, but also evoking, uh, making a commentary rather about religion and commentary about how religion can be manipulated by one side, but used for good by the other side and how this can be twisted any organization, any uh, belief system can be twisted in a certain way by the people who use it. And that's really a lot of what I felt coming out of this movie. And also, you know, it's fascinating. People get so caught up in thinking that only the new ideas are the smart ideas and don't go back and watch these classics. And these classics are covering the exact same stuff that is supposedly groundbreaking nowadays or so incredible nowadays. And the truth is so much of the foundational stuff that is groundbreaking nowadays can be found in films from the past. And Charles Lawton's film, uh, Night, The Night of the Hunter, is another example of that. It is so much its own thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the way, and I don't, I, I'm going to have to reckon with the sort of number two to Citizen Kane thing because I've only had this movie in my consciousness right. for like a week. I would think about it. But in terms of just being a unique movie that looks like it looks. Yeah. It, that is a similarity with Kane. You know, that there just isn't anything like The Night of the Hunter. I had to do a little bit of uh, research into Charles Lawton mm -hmm. just because he seems to be just one of the most fascinating characters. 100%. He was a student at RADA. One of his teachers was Claude Rains. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
and did obviously tons of theater, did silent movies, which is where he met uh, Elsa Lanchester. He did who we just talked about as Katie Nana yeah. in Mary Poppins. And of course, is the bride of Frankenstein. And that became his wife. He made his Broadway debut in 1931 in a play with Boris Karloff. He started doing movies and just was sort of an instant hit as a character actor. Mm. And it's just one of those people that there's there's nothing like him, his presence, you know? Yeah, watching him in, you know, Spartacus, watching him in all these different films, there's a confidence, right? Muni on the Bounty, there's a confidence that radiates off of him as an actor. And, you know, one of the th- reasons that he was motivated to do this movie was to call out the hypocrisy of the church because he lived his entire life, he lived a majority of his life as a closeted gay man, and he blamed the church for the reasons why he stayed, why he was a closeted gay man for so long, how certain people who were agents of the church manipulated the, manipulated religion, manipulated the message to affect him to be in this condition for such a long time. So you see that here in this movie, and there's a confidence, there's a strength, there's a power in the direction that mirrors the confidence and power that he has as an actor in all these various roles that he's played throughout his life. Um, what was the lawyer one that he was in witness for the prosecution? Isn't that mm-hmm. him as the head lawyer? When he's so remember. fantastic in that uh, um, film as a lawyer as well. So it's just an increase, an incredible energy and incredible talent that people don't talk about enough, but the cinephiles who are actual cinephiles know, love and revere Charles Lawton for sure. Well, and we talked about comparisons with Kane. I mean, there's also comparisons with Orson Welles, you know, which yes. is this fascinating interesting character actor who is also a director who is doing theater who's doing film who's doing all sorts of different things who's doing kind of spoken word and he was buddies with orson welles too by the way they they were friends and uh he worked with bertolt brecht who is a famous uh playwright and theater director and and they became very very close collaborators he won the Oscar in 1933 for playing Henry VIII, which is an amazing performance. And of course, and again, it's so funny that we were just talking about this, but Quasimodo in 1939. Right. Um, And, and, you know, and you mentioned too, that he was a closeted gay man. He also, it sounds like his marriage to Elsa Lanchester in whatever form that was, Mm -hmm. was a very happy marriage for 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. He's also a guy who could do comedy. If you all haven't seen the Canterville ghost, do yourself a, va- a favor and watch the Canterville ghost. What's that? I haven't. Yeah. He is so funny as this, as a scared ghost who haunts this uh, house and this young girl who eventually leads him to find retribution for himself because he's a ghost because he has unfinished business on Earth. And he is just a clumsy, awkward, frightened ghost because he thinks he was a coward uh, in war and he has to kind of redeem himself and has been fighting, uh, waiting for the moment to redeem himself uh, in his life. And that happens in the movie. It is fantastic. He also played Captain William Kidd way back in the 1930s, 1940s there, and then reprised the role for an Abbott and Costello film, Abbott and Costello meet Captain Kidd. So, I mean, he is a person who was able to have fun when he wanted to, when he could have fun and also be very serious and layered and nuanced and complex as a performer and as a director, as we see in this movie, uh, when he needed to be. So it's just a fascinating individual in so many ways um, in film during these decades. So here's how this movie came about. It starts with a guy named Paul Gregory. And Paul Gregory is like an actor, producer, and apparently he's sitting in a bar. 
And the Ed Sullivan show comes up and Charles Lawton comes up to do readings because this was a guy who could just literally, you know, and he would do readings from the Bible Mm -hmm. and just be completely captivating. And Paul Gregory goes, I have to meet this guy, runs out of the bar down the street. He's in New York, makes it to the stage door of the Ed Sullivan Theater. And Charles Lawton is coming out and he says, I need to talk to you. And Lawton goes, talk to my agent, my boy. Um, (laughs) And he goes, no, I need to talk to you now. I'm going to make you a million dollars. And, and Lawton goes, okay. And they go back to his hotel room and he says, look, your spoken word, the speeches you give, you need to do a speaking tour around the country and I will sell out every theater in the country. They sign a contract on the hotel stationery, and this is what they do. And they start doing tours where he's doing reading from the Bible. And he brings together these interesting actors to do scenes from Shakespeare and all this stuff. And they are selling out. But... Lawton's health is starting to deteriorate and all the touring is wearing on him. And this is when his his cancer, which at the time was undiagnosed, is probably starting. And they go, we we should have. Oh, and he started at the same time directing for Broadway, including he directed the Kane Mutiny on Broadway, which was a huge hit at this time. And he goes, you know, we should you should become a movie director because then you don't have to do all the touring. It's less physically exhausting, which is complete bullshit, by the way. <laughs> directing a movie is ex- very exhausting. And uh Paul Gregory gets a copy of this book by Davis Grubb, which is The Night of the Hunter. And it's based on a true story of this guy, Harry Powers, who was hanged in 1932 for the murder of two widows and three children in Clarksville, West Virginia. Yeah. Lawton reads it, loves it. He describes it. And I think this description is perfect mm-hmm. for what he did in the movie. He describes this as a nightmarish mother goose. Yeah, that sounds about right. It is it is to- totally right. It was funny as I think about it, like I was like, well, what are Mother Goose stories? They're all like kids being thrown in ovens and, yeah. and you know, like grim stories of wolves being cut open. And they're all really violent and terrifying, actually, the more that you think about all these stories that we grew up with. Yeah. So Paul Gregory wanted Lawrence of Olivier, Lawrence Olivier to do it. Wow. Now, my memory from when we did Spartacus is those two did not get along. No, Lawton, they Lawton and Olivier. Yeah. The the what I was what I read was that he was he couldn't schedule it, but I bet there was more to it than him not doing <laughs> that. The next actor they go for is Gary Cooper. Oh, an interesting choice to turn the all American he, uh, hero into a villain like this. Oof! And that is exactly why Gary Cooper turned it down. He's yeah. like, I can't, I can't have that be on my. Uh, and, and, and then the person, there was another actor who keeps coming after them to play the part, yeah. which makes perfect sense. Cause that is John Carradine. Oh yeah. That's a creepy dude. John Carradine. Yeah. Um, and they say no to him and it was Lawton's idea to go after, after Robert Mitchum and Paul Gregory went, I think, you know, Roger, Robert Mitchum's like a sex symbol. Like, you don't, we don't, we don't want to get this guy too sexy. And Lawton's response is, if you want to sell God, you have to be sexy. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I, I bet, I bet hanging out with Charles Lawton would have been a hoot. I a hundred percent agree with you. A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, he meets Davis Grubb, who's the author of the book, and they get along great. And frankly, it sounds like everyone got along great with Charles Lawton. He sounds like he was a lovely person. And Davis just started drawing some pictures and sent him pictures of of what he thought the movie would should look like. Mm-hmm. Lawton saw them and went, these are fantastic. Send more. And those end up being part of the storyboards. Wow. It sounds like Lawton's whole way of working with people was extremely collaborative. Mm-hmm. He was he wanted people's opinions. He wanted people on the set. He wanted people being creative. That's what he enjoyed, you know. 
Well, I think that's the difference between him and Olivier, why him and Olivier would, would probably butt heads all the time. Because, you know, Lawton is the son of hotel innkeepers. Like he's yeah. not, you know, like Olivier has that kind of air about him, that kind of elitist air about him. So you imagine Lawton who comes along, has just as much talent as Olivier, but in a different package, but a much more uh, grounded, blue-collar type approach to acting. Uh, and here he is, like, going toe-to-toe with Olivier. So obviously they would have problems. Obviously they would butt heads uh, as Olivier needs to be the center and the star, whereas Lawton yeah. has no problem sharing credit, sharing uh, uh, or collaborating and sharing uh, the creation of something uh, right. with the people he works with. So it's, it's a fascinating situation between both of them, yeah. They bring in James Agee, who is the screenwriter of The African Queen, mm. sits down to write a script because you got to get a pro to write the script. Well, this pro turns in a script that's 293 pages long. It's a long. It's a long. <laughs> I mean, if, if and you think about like the general rule of thumb, which isn't always true, is it's a minute a page. Yeah. This ends up being a 90 minute movie, you know, 293 <laughs> pages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was Lawton who edited it down. He cut it in more than half wow. uh, to, to come up with this movie. Interesting. Uh, the budget was about a million bucks with almost half of it going to Robert Mitchum. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's power. Half the budget. Goodness. Yeah. And uh, you, you remember how we, we talked about, and I, I, I obviously already knew this about Orson Welles, mm-hmm. that when he was getting ready for Citizen Kane, that he watched Stagecoach over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. John so, Ford Stagecoach. Yeah. Lawton did the same thing, except for him, it was D.W. Griffith. He watched silent films oh, because yeah. he felt that something had been lost in, in modern movies in the 50s. His words for it was that when pe- we watch silent films, everyone sat forward in their seat. Mm-hmm. And now everyone slumps back in their seat. And I want to make people sit forward. Yeah. And so he screened these silent films over and over and over again. That is part of why... This movie doesn't look like a mid-50s movie. No, you're right. 100%. Speaking of the movie, would you like to get into The Night of the Hunter? Oh, are we ready to go? Yes. That's all my pre-production. Let's go. Let's get into it. It begins with some heavy music, titles, and stars in the background. And then, kind of floating in front of the star, appears Lillian Gish. Now, you remember, children, how I told you last Sunday about the good Lord going up into the mountain and talking to the people? And how he said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And again, I knew nothing about this movie. So as she starts reading to us from the Bible, I'm just like, what is this movie? You know, like, what is this about? Um, By the way, would you like to know who uh, Charles Lawton's first choice for this role was? Ooh. First choice was his wife, Elsa Lanchester. Oh, Elsa. Oh. Yeah. And she turned it down. <laughs> and I do not know why. No, honey. I don't want to do it. In my movie, it's my directorial debut. No, I don't want to. I don't see the part. I don't see the point of the part. I, yeah. I mean, there, there could be a million reasons why she chose not to do it, but it is an interesting thing. And then what's funny, and it's just weird that these names keep coming up, is the, the name the studio wanted to play Mrs. Cooper was Jane Darwell, who we just saw as the bird lady in Mary Poppins oh, is from God. Grapes of Wrath. I could see that. But this was the right choice. If you're going to have silent movie illusions, casting someone like Lillian Gish is genius, right? To kind of, in a way, uh, reinforce that point in a subtle way for people. Well, uh, 
I 100% agree. And it's funny because he goes, he rejects Jane Darwell. And he says, no, I'm imagining someone who's more bird-like. And you want to know who suggested Lillian Gish? Is his wife, Elsa Lanchester. <laughs> She's the one who says, why don't you get Lillian Gish? And, he, and he's like, we can't get Lillian Gish. It's not possible. And literally, he is, she is D.W. Griffith's star. That is who he has been watching. She's the star of Birth of a Nation. She's the star of his early short films. She's one of the first silent film stars there is. Yep. And somehow, as he's screening all the D.W. Griffith movies, Lillian Gish, who lives in New York, which is where he's screening the movies, gets word of the fact that Charles Lawton is screening all these films. And so he calls her up, you know, to ask her, even though he doesn't think, and he says, and the first thing she says to him is, why have you been screening all my old movies? <laughs> and he goes, well, I want you to play this part. And and I mean, Lillian Gish, first of all, I think she's fucking amazing in this movie. Yeah, she is. Yeah. I mean, she is astoundingly good. And it's just crazy. Her career starts in shorts in 1912. Mm -hmm. Her last film is in 1987 with Betty Davis in The Whales of August. The Whales of August. I remember that film. Before yeah. I didn't even know who Lillian Gish was. I watched it for Betty Davis in the 1980s. Yeah. And then it wasn't until later that I realized who Lillian Gish was. I mean, a 75-year span of filmmaking from D.W. Griffith to the late 80s. That is, that is astounding. And how he said that King Solomon in all his glory was not as beautiful as the lilies of the field. We cut to these floating faces of these kids listening to these stories. And I know you won't forget, judge not, lest she be judged, because I explained that to you. By the way, this image of the of reading to the kids and the floating faces out in space, this is actually how James Agee wanted the movie to end. This was the oh. end of the script. Wow. That would have been a little too much on the nose, I feel like. I think they made the right choice putting it at the beginning because it also serves as a, a foreshadowing of where we're going to end up here with her surrounded by the kids, still reading them the Bible, still changing their lives in a positive way. And the kids kind of above everything else because she's instilling the right lessons into these children. Well, and I love the sort of folksy isn't exactly the right word, but you, you know, casual way that she's communicating these stories. Just down home, man. Then the good Lord went on to say, beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. And we fade back into this high angle shot of these kids playing hide and seek next to like an old house. This is like a helicopter shot filmed in uh, West Virginia. This is all the second unit stuff. And then we do what happens many, many times in this film is we go from that shot to a studio shot where we're on the back lot of the Culver of the Columbia studio in Culver City. Uh, which is, you know, where they shot Gone with the Wind and all sorts of stuff like that on this little ranch. And we're looking at kids who are playing hide and seek and kid goes to the cellar and then stops and the camera pushes in and we see a dead woman's legs in the cellar. Hey! Hey! A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Wherefore, by their fruits, ye shall know them. Now we dissolve to a high angle of a car driving in a field, and then we move in on the car to what is very obviously a process shot of <laughs> Robert Mitchum driving in front of a background which was shot in West Virginia. And he says, Well, now, what's it to be, Lord? Another widow? How many has it been? Six? Twelve? 
I just remember. So what do you think is going on at this moment? There's a lot going on for me because I grew up, you know, in the Catholic Church. I grew up going to Sunday school. I grew up being exposed to people who think God speaks to them, to people who think, um, and I knew he was a villain in the movie. So before I watched, I already had that uh, uh, prism in my head in which to interpret him. So when you see him riding in this car and you see the dead woman, you make the connection and he's riding in this car, but he's talking to God. He thinks he's talking to God. His um, absolute mania or maybe instability mentally uh, convinces him that he is talking, actually talking to God and having a back and forth, not just speaking or praying or, you know, uh, having a one way conversation. He is having a back and forth. And that is chilling because some people do believe that they talk to God or that God talks to them and they commit some of the most worst, some of the worst acts that you can commit on this planet and hide behind the fact that religion told them to do it or that the God told them to do it, or they have some special connection to God. And isn't that the base for evangelical evangelism is people saying, God spoke to me. God told me to do this. God sent me on this mission and all of that. God told me to have five jets and six houses. And so this is a microcosm of what you see, how people can manipulate religion to fit their own um, points of views on things and their own human frailties. A hundred percent. I didn't have the reaction uh, that you had in terms of the religious mm. element because I obviously wasn't raised Catholic. Yeah, yeah. But the, the moment, because it's so interesting, again, most of the movies we do on the cinephiles, I know, you know, like I know them pretty well. And so with this, I knew nothing. And so the moment that he says, You always send me money to go forth and preach your word. A widow with a little wad of bills hid away in a sugar bowl. And I go, oh, he killed that woman that we just saw. And he said six to 12. Yep. So this is a serial killer. Well, it's so interesting. Yes, he is. And so interesting because he said six. And then he hears back from the Lord 12. And yeah. then he goes, oh, 12. So even in his warped mind, God is correcting him and knows what he's doing. Uh, and yeah, he and he thinks because this woman had money, this is a sign from God that he should keep doing the things that he's doing. Because right. in his warped mind, he has this belief uh, about and the hatred of women. And that's another element of this film that is super fucking progressive. Back yeah. in the 1940s, whenever this film was released... Again, we're talking about this idea of how religion manipulates men to believe women should be subservient, manipulates men to hate their sexual impulses or their sexual desires. All these things that you see in this movie as we progress with this character that you see nowadays in films or that you see nowadays in on talk shows and conversations and arguments on channels, we're still, still, Steve, having this argument about how religion uh, can be so misogynist towards women. Sometimes I wonder if you really understand. Not that you mind the killings. Your book is full of killings. So I, first of all, I just want to stop right there. Yeah. Because that is true. Yes, of course. <laughs> yeah. The Old Testament. Well, the, you get into revelations, man. You know, oh, yeah. right. <laughs> there's a lot. It's a, it is definitely full of killings. And God is definitely responsible for a lot of it. Yes. But there are things you do hate, Lord. Perfume-smelling things, lacy things, things with curly hair. Look, the process shots are real cheesy to watch now in 2023 for sure, but Robert Mitchum's performance is super chilling. Nothing about what he's doing 
would make you believe that he doesn't believe what he's doing. Like he doesn't, he totally believes that he's talking to God, totally believes that he's been sent to uh, to do the things that he's doing. And the way his face changes when he talks about those lacy things and those, and then we cut to him and he is in spotlight in this mm-hmm. darkened room, watching her through what seems like a keyhole type of prism there or a type of um, uh, shot there in the camera uh, in a way like maybe this is a, a bit of a hint from Charles Lawton that this guy used to watch, maybe his mother was a prostitute mm. or a hooker or something, and he'd watch through the keyhole and watch her dance for men or watch her have sex with men, which warped him, right? Rorschach and Watchmen, that kind of connection. So you see that, and he's in silhouette, and I think it's, and he's pulled back, and there's just a real striking, angry look on his face, man. This dude oh, has yeah. a lot of issues he has not come to terms with. And here's the thing. I remember way, way back when we did the Dirty Dozen, mm. And we were talking about the Telly Savalas character. And I asked the question, is this the first example of the sex-obsessed, woman-hating, religious, uh, crazy person in film? Mm. Because it was the first one I knew about. Well, clearly it's not. Because here we have the Night of the Hunter, you know? And I'm sure there are silent films that that had characters like this as well. Um, You know, people think we were, people think we were so prim and proper back in the silent film era. No, there's a lot of brutality in the silent film era. Yeah. Well, and it also goes to the sort of the silent film element of uh, one of the things I think Mm. that we have lost, you know, is because the other connection with this film is German expressionism, which is, you know, cabinet Dr. Caligari and all these things, which in the silent film era, people were much more comfortable being theatrical and not necessarily realistic. And what we're looking at, she's, it's barely a set that she's on. Yes, just right. a couple of visual elements. And when you turn the camera around on him, it's kind of like, you know, we can see his face, but everyone else is in shadows. And it reminds me of the newspaper men in Kane yeah. in the, you know, in the in that first scene in the projecting room. Yeah. You know, it's like this is an expressionistic thing that we're looking at. Yeah. Um, and we were watching him, and this is the first time we see that he has hate written on his knuckles. Mm. And we see him, and I just love the way they do this is that hate hand makes a fist. Yeah. And he puts that hand away. Like he doesn't want to lose control on some level or something. He hides the hate hand in his pocket. And then that switchblade knife pops through the fabric of his jacket. It's interesting because, you know, again, Steve, symbolism and all of that stuff for me as I'm watching movies, especially when I'm watching movies for the first time, I really enjoy kind of catching things. And I'm not always right, obviously, but I enjoy it. You know, enjoy that kind of thing. Seeing him scrunch up the fist, Charles Lawton purposely puts hate in close up so that you see the anger and you see the frustration that a woman simply dancing does to him and how it emasculates him and how it makes him feel powerless. So what does he reach for? A knife, a weapon, an extension of his penis to destroy he, it, and it rips through his coat, if I remember correctly. And what happens in the Bible, sometimes in the Old Testament, especially, people tear their clothes when oh. they see something they're offended by, right? Oh, that's so, interesting. So these things are little, not, look, I may be looking for them, but they pop up in my brain when I'm watching these things. And there may have been, Charles may have been making, making a little subtle reference to that because he is a man, supposedly a man of the cloth. He's a fake man of the cloth. But that kind of connection here and anger and frustration uh, to it all. Well, one connection you're definitely not making up is about you mentioned that it's like a penis. Well, 
originally in the script, he didn't put that hand in his jacket pocket. He put it in his pants pocket and it came out right through his pants. <laughs> yeah. So maybe Charles like, I'd like to be a little more subtle than that. <laughs> well, that's what, but what's crazy to me about this movie, there is so much reference to sex oh, yeah. in this movie, in this mother, you know, this terrifying mother goose story, but there, and like sex is a part of this film in a, in a visceral way. I yes. Think. There are too many of them. You can't kill a world. Like, fuck, man, this is a scary dude. And right at that moment, a hand comes down on his shoulder. The camera tilts up to see the sheriff. You're driving a touring car with a Moundsville license? And then we wipe to, again, very much like a theatrical set. Not like a real space, but a courtroom. Super simple, one shot, and the judge says, Harry Powell, for the theft of that touring car, you'll spend 30 days in the Moundsville Penitentiary. The preacher, Harry Powell. And I love the judge at this moment. Picked up where you were. A man of God, Harry Powell. <laughs> I don't know what was in the 293-page script, but this is a fast pace Yes, that we're moving at. You know? A lot of cuts, yes. Uh, and again, we have an aerial shot, and there's happier music, and then we come down and we meet our two kids, which is John and Pearl Harper, played by Billy Chapin and Sally Jane, uh, Sally Jane Bruce. Billy worked a little bit after this movie. This is the last credit for Sally. Sally got the part. She just won like a singing contest. She is really young. Yes. I mean, that is a young kid to have to have to direct. And they're playing with a doll. And then a car drives up fast and out comes their dad. Where's your mom? Peter Graves. Peter Graves. Do you like gladiator films, John? <laughs> I was watching. It was so funny because I, I didn't know his face at this is you know mm -hmm. a decade before i started to know him in mission impossible right. and i was like this guy is so familiar and he's so square jawed yeah big heroic looking man you know but he is terrified at the moment you're bleeding dad listen to me john this morning here we gotta we gotta hide it before they get to me there's close to ten thousand dollars he's got a gun in his hand and a stack of money and he's looking around for a spot can't figure out where to put it and then goes sure that's the place and we hear the siren coming. And I'm like, and again, because I knew nothing about the movie. I'm like, where's this movie going? Like, what is going on? Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is, can you, I mean, dad comes home with a gun and 10 grand and the sirens are coming and he goes, we got we to gotta hide this money. And this is Depression era times too, yeah. right? So $10,000 in Depression era times, good God almighty how much money that is. Listen to me, son. You've got to swear. Swear means promise. First swear you'll take care of little Pearl. Guard her with your life, boy. And swear you won't never tell where the money's hid, not even your mom. That's a lot to lay on this little kid. Yeah. Not even her? You got common sense, she ain't. And then he makes him stand up and swear. And the thing is, here's an interesting thing about how Charles Lawton made this film. Mm -hmm. And partially it was because he was really thinking about silent movies. And he had started in silent movies. Right. Is normally when you make when you're shooting a movie, you say this is the shot we're doing, you have a slate, you slate the scene. You do take one at the end of the take, you say cut, they stop rolling the camera. Then you set up for the second one, you slate it again, and then you do the second take. Right. Charles Lawton, for most of this movie, just rolled a whole reel of film. <laughs> wow. So, and he would do what they did in a silent movie, which is he's talking to the actors the whole time yeah. and he's just having them do it over and over and over again. Say that line again, say that line again, say that line again until he gets what he wants. And in particular, this is with the kids. So he is just standing off camera, giving the kids direction as they go. Hmm. What's your feeling? With with what in particular? 
as well as an actor, let me yes. ask you about, have you ever worked with a director who is directing you in this way? Yes. On stage. And I don't mind it. Cause like, what do you need? Let's get to what you need so we can move on. It doesn't mean it isn't frustrating, but depends on the project uh, and what's happening in the scene. I don't mind those kinds of things. It sounds to me like for the most part on this set, the actors liked it. And we'll get to an example where they didn't uh, later on. But it's funny. I've di- I've directed. I, I remember I did that crazy uh, Buried Alive project for Mike Ross. Oh, yes. When he was at Sony. God, that that's right. Josh acted in. Did you act in that one? I don't think you did it, that one. I don't remember if I did or not. I don't remember if we put you in a coffin and made you act. I remember directing Josh Moon in a coffin. Yes. Um, and that was one where I was, re- it was mostly silent. <clears throat> and that was one where I really was talking to him throughout. And I think it worked really, really well. I mean, there's, you know, weird things of sensitivities about line readings and he get, sure. you, what, what he isn't giving people time to do is reset. Like sometimes when you do a mm. take, like you need a moment. Let me have a moment before I start this right over. Right. He was like, just do it again right away. But in particular with the kids, with him off camera, he is giving line readings to the kids and just have him do it again and do it again and do it again until he got what he wanted. Now stand up straight and look me in the eye. Raise your right hand. And I swear, I'll guard Pearl with my life. I will guard Pearl with my life. And I won't never tell about the money. And I won't never tell about the money. The cops are showing up. I don't know if you were scared, but I'm like, he hasn't dropped that gun yet. Yeah, I know. Especially because he pulled the guns out and they kept telling him to drop the gun as he backed slowly towards yeah. him. Yeah. And then what happens is very specific because when they they grab him and they hit him to take to take him down, John, the little kid, clutches his stomach in this very specific way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, part of what has happened is that Charles Lawton is right next to John, just off camera, and he is not hard, but not slapped him in the stomach the second before. Oh, like, like a tap, you know, with, with the, not to hurt him, but you could, so that his, the kid's reaction is to what you just didn't see, which is Lawton's hand hitting him in the stomach a moment before. Interesting. Don't. Don't. And we watch Dan handcuffed and they take him away. Yeah. By the way, in the book, this scene is actually a flashback dream sequence in the middle of the book. Mm. So you spend the first half of the book, not knowing what happened to dad. Oh, interesting. And then we go back to court, and it is exactly the same shot as we were in before when the preacher was in court, except that the preacher was in silhouette and Ben is not. Mm-hmm. Because even though he's a killer, he is not as bad a guy as the preacher. Yeah. Ben Harper, it is the sentence of this court that for the murder of Ed Smiley and Corey South, you be hanged by the neck until you are dead. And may God have mercy on your soul. And again, I'm going, man, what is this movie? (laughs) And we're on a bunk bed where Ben is. He's asleep. And you see, and I love the shot of Robert Mitchum's face popping down, upside down, Mm -hmm. talking to him. And Ben is talking to his sleep. And it's very obvious that the preacher is trying to get him to tell him where that money is. Come on, boy. Tell me. And Ben wakes up and immediately (laughs) punches him in the face. And Robert Mitchum falls off the bunk. (laughs) <laughs> and he Ben immediately gets what he was trying to do. You're trying to make me talk in my sleep. No, Ben, no. What I say? What? 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 You was quoting the scripture, Ben. You said, "And a little child shall lead them." Which, in fact, is who knows where the money is. Yeah. And we hear what his motivation was. He says, "I robbed that bank because I got tired of seeing children roam on the woodlands without food. Children roam on the highways in this year of depression." Children sleeping in old abandoned car bodies and junk heaps. 
I promised myself I'd never see the day when my young'uns would want. And Preacher's like, with that money, I can get a tabernacle. Yeah, this is so interesting if you look at the film in that way, in the um, uh, symbolism way, because look, this is the first generation of this family who will get the best of the preacher uh, mm. as the next generation will eventually get the best of the preacher as the film goes along. Mm. Mm. Um, but, and also him from high above, from above him getting knocked down below him because he's not a real preacher. He's a fake preacher. But then also the conversation about the fact that this is an altruistic reason of why he stole the money. He didn't want to see kids suffering anymore. Yeah. And certainly as it was back then, as it is now, the idea of the have nots, hating how much the haves have because they abuse the working man. They abuse the working families. They abuse workers, male or female, or however you identify. They abuse them so they can keep lining their pockets. We're in the middle of a strike, two strikes that are uh, about that as well. So clearly their dad felt that he what he was doing was right, even though it's not, you know, you don't advocate stealing money from a bank or whatever. But just like uh, Jean Valjean, it was his uh, intention to feed, intention to give, not to take for selfish gain. And of course, the preacher who is all about himself is like, what can I, what big thing can I buy with this money? A tabernacle. And again, religion wanting money from the less fortunate so they can uh, elevate themselves, you know? And to be real clear, he ain't going to buy a tabernacle. No, he ain't going to buy a tabernacle. Well, um, to burn women in, I guess. One, one thing I wish that was in the movie that isn't, which is I wish there was a line that said, I never wanted to kill anybody, you know? Oh, to uh, absolve him even more. Yeah, that 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 you know he wanted to rob the bank and then they pulled a gun on him and then he he had to kill him or something. I, I wish we had a little bit more of that. But we, <laughs> it's a complicated world, Steve. It's the yep. depression, man. Yep. Um. Uh. And then he says, we, we mentioned the fact that he still has his knife, and he says, "The Lord blinded mine enemies when they brought me in this evil place. I smuggled it in right under the noses of them guards." Everything is framed with that he is, has God's help, that God wants him to have that knife, that God wants him to do everything that he's doing. So many people take coincidence and think it's God's. Or see bad things happen and go, oh, that's God obviously punishing you. Yes. That. What religion you profess, preacher? The religion the Almighty and me worked out betwixt us. So basically, yes. I'm going to cherry pick what I need to for myself uh, from religion that fits my point of view. And certainly, Steve, we can't ignore what has been going on recently in these reports that we're hearing about people in churches who are telling ministers that they need to change what they're preaching from the Bible to fit what they believe about the world, to fit more of an, argue, uh, an, an angry point of view, a judgmental point of view, a hateful point of view. And so the, they're all essentially becoming Harry Powell's in how they perceive religion because they want to change, and a lot of them want to change, turn the other cheek. They want to remove that from the Bible. So we see that people will manipulate something like this to fit their own point of view, rather than adhering to the hard work you have to do in order to walk the path that is, that is laid out in the Bible very clearly by God and later Jesus Christ. Well, I'm sadly going to have to let out a bit more of my atheism, because <laughs> I will say that... I like when all, you do this. All religions throughout history have always cherry-picked everything that they wanted to do. No, I mean, if you read that Bible, 
Mm-hmm. Nobody does all the stuff that's in there. No, no, of course And not. never has. They've always cherry-picked and, like, you know, used religion to take out political enemies or mm-hmm. popes, you know, gaining political power or, you know, let's go. I, I literally just listened to a set of lectures on the Crusades because mm-hmm. that's the kind of thing I do in my spare time. Well, and, the Spanish Inquisition. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> what is the Spanish? <laughs> and the Crusades are fucking nuts. They're yes, just they completely are. insane that people go, oh, yeah, we definitely need to go take the Holy Land for And they would even sometimes in some of the crusades they went to the wrong place sure. like they were just like i mean it was just was you mean like a, columbus yeah exactly yeah, yeah i mean like it's just so it's it's ridiculous and it goes on in all religions throughout all of history cherry picking stuff right but you can cherry pick and again this is a good thing about the film you can cherry pick to do good in the world yeah which is what lillian gish's character does miss powell yep uh, but i'm mean, not miss powell uh the other name but like cooper harry and people like harry cherry pick parts of religion in order in the Bible, in order to fit their own warp points of views on the world. And I think we're seeing more and more people trying to do that in our society in many countries across the world recently. Well, and this is why it's funny, you know, this is the whole other project I've started to work on, which is about faith and religion, mm. is I have no problem with people who are religious if the, if you're trying to do good. If if that helps you be happier and do better and be a better person and be more kind and more compassionate, that is awesome. Right. It's just a power that you could use for all sorts of stuff. Yes, but it's all point of view, isn't it? Because the people who are doing the things that are all, what you would think to be nefarious or wrong think they're doing good in the world. So it's all about perspective and point of view, mm-hmm. sadly. And later on, we see the love hand coming through the bars, holding the knife, and he says, Lord, you sure knowed what you was doing when you put me in this very cell at this very time. A man with $10,000 hid somewhere and a widow in the making. Right. So you look at this situation, this scenario. If he's really a man of God, he is here in the cell with this man to help him transition to the kingdom of heaven and help him um, uh, ask for forgiveness, be redeemed for the sins or forgiven for his sins, and seek redemption before he goes and meets his maker. If that's what you believe, and if you're an actual preacher, but instead, because he's not an actual preacher and he's a completely warped individual, he sees this opportunity as God giving him this man to find out the information so that he can make himself $10,000 richer. So, And I think this is such a great thing about this film. It shows you that people can use religion a certain way, uh, for negatives, and people can use religion for a certain way for positives. And here he is. If he was a positive man, a better man, he had taken the opportunity to help this man transition because he's going to be hanged. But because he isn't, he thinks it's an, it's God telling him to go and do these things. Well, and the thing that's really great at this moment is that, and it and it comes from watching a movie that I didn't know anything about. Is there's this moment that you happen when you're watching a film where the film coalesces in your mind mm. because I go. Oh, I met this guy who's a serial killer who hates women and steals money from them. Oh, I met these kids and I met their dad and that they hid money somewhere. And now those two people come together and I go, oh, and you have this moment of, oh, shit. <laughs> the serial killer is coming after the kids to get yep. the money, Yep, you know, mm-hmm. and and then you under you could see where the movie is going in this really scary way. Mm-hmm. So it's dawn and we hear a bell ring and a cell opens and out comes this man who is 
essentially the executioner, I think. Yeah. Any trouble? No. Yeah, there's a coup in that Harper. Never broke. Carried on some. Kicked. They say you left a wife and two kids. I never heard. I, what I find really strange is that we follow the executioner into his home for a moment. Yeah. Uh, which I do find strange, but he, he and he's you could tell that killing Ben Harper has affected him because he said Ben Harper didn't break, and you know why he didn't break because Ben Harper believed what he had done was the correct thing to do, right? And he was willing to accept the punishment. Mother, sometimes I think it might be better if I was to quit my job as guard. And we realize this guy is trapped into his world, right? Later on in the film, we're going to see a bird singing in a cage. And throughout mm. this whole film, there are many people who are singing in a cage. Oh, great point, man. And then we hear this song. Hing, hang, hung, see what the hangman done. Hing, hang, hing, hang, hang, hung, see what the hangman done. And we cut to kids on a playground that are obviously singing about the hanging of Ben Harper. And what kids walk up to see this, but they're... Ben Harper's kids, Johnny and Pearl. And and one of the one of the other kids that's singing is drawing a hangman with chalk. I just can't imagine as a child knowing your father has just been killed walking up to your school and singing that. Yeah. Children can be the nicest, most caring people in the world, and they can always be and they can also be the most cruel, you know. Yeah. Because, you know, they're not emotionally mature. And they turn around and they don't go to school. Yeah. And they're walking through town again. This is all in the Columbia lot in Culver City. And this woman comes out, who I believe is uncredited in the film, mm. and she is so horrible. <laughs> and she's horrible in the way of like she's trying to be nice or pretending to be nice. So your mommy's keeping you out of school these days. How is your poor, poor mother? She's at school's ice cream parlor. Hey, did they ever find out what your father done with all that money he stole? Yep. Just wanting to get information for herself yet again. Um, and they, you know, and I think they cast someone in a certain way to look a certain way. So he's making a commentary about people like this. She is, you know, a larger person, perhaps gluttonous greed. It's not enough. Must also get these $10,000 from these kids and try to trick them into telling me where the money is. Well, I think there's kind of two kinds of evil in this movie. One evil is, is the preacher. Yeah. Who's scary serial killer scary evil mm -hmm. but the other evil is sort of the ordinary folk small towns yeah yeah well i just people you know people sure. small-minded people jealous with you know who are, can be really nasty and this woman is the first example that we see and they walk away from that and now little pearl starts singing hing hang hung yeah It's chilling to me because she doesn't understand the song. Yeah. She, she doesn't really understand that her dad is dead. And she doesn't understand that her dad was, you know, like she's too little to grasp these concepts. But John knows what's going on. Oh, yeah. You better not sing that song. Why? And he doesn't say, because that's a song about our dad that was just killed because of the crime. He I mean, he doesn't say that. He says. Because you're too little. One of the themes, and again, it's Mother Goose. It's Grimm's fairy tales, is how much gets laid on the shoulders of little kids. Yeah. And I lo love the moment they walk up to the ice cream parlor. They look into the window and see their mom, Shelly Winters. Pearl asks, can we get candy? And mom gives that subtle sort of no. And John knows what that means and walks away. It's funny because Walt's standing there with two lollipops in his hand to give to the kids. 
but they just walk away. Well, and my guess is that mom doesn't want them to be charity cases, you know, mm, possibly like that's, that's, that's sort of my guess on the scene. Okay. So Sh- Shelly Winters, would you like to know two of the other people that wanted this part mm-hmm. and actively uh, campaigned for it? Oh, please. Yeah. I'll tell you the one that's a, obviously a big star right at this moment, but I wouldn't like in this part. And that is Grace Kelly. Oh my God. No. Yeah. But the person who I think would have been amazing in this part is also in Citizen Kane, and that is Agnes Moorhead. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Although you needed – I don't know if I saw Agnes Moorhead as kind of sexy. And Shelley is kind of sexy in the movie as this young widow. In an odd way. I mean, she's sort of – she's not She's not made to be super – like Grace Kelly would be way too elegant. Way too elegant. Yes. Yeah. You might as well just cast Cary Grant as a pal at that point. <laughs> Cary Grant and Grace Kelly in The Night of the Hunter. Night of the Hunt. I'm going to kill you now. Yeah, it's not good. Um, sorry, I'm just picturing that a little bit. Um, so obviously, I think this is our first Shelley Winters movie. Mm. Uh, two Oscars, four nominations. She had lots of theater before coming to Hollywood for a big break. Lots of movies in the 40s and 50s. Yeah. She was in the actor's studio. She shared an apartment with Marilyn Monroe. And she was also a student of Charles Lawton, who privately taught Shakespeare and other stuff at his home in Hollywood. Wow. And he was the one who decided that he wanted Shelley Winters to play this part. Why don't we have any more Charles Lawton, Steve? I would fucking fight people to be taught Shakespeare by Charles Lawton. Like, I would right. literally get into a ring with a bear just so I could have a chance to learn from Charles Lawton how to, you know, how to do Shakespeare. The only person I can think of that's maybe close is maybe Kenneth Branagh. No, but Bruno's kind of a prick sometimes. But yes, yes. But I'm um, sure Lawton was at times too. I mean, oh, I'm sure he was. But but, but Bruno, another working class guy who found yeah. his way into. So yeah, maybe not a bad comparison. Certainly. So we're with uh, Icy and Walt Spoon, who are the owners of the Spoon Parlor. They're like also probably uh, Willa's closest friend. That's Willa Harper is the name of the Shelley Winters character. Mm-hmm. Willa Harper, there is certain plain facts of life that adds up just like two plus two makes four, and one of them is this. No woman is able to raise growing youngsters alone. The Lord meant that job for two. I see, I just don't want a husband. And then we cut to an aggressive, dark train with heavy, heavy music driving towards camera. First of all, this train wasn't shot. They were going to use a model train for this thing, and then they found this in some Fox movie, and they bought this from another film. And the score that we hear is the score that's associated with the preacher. It's written by Walter Schumann, and it is a it's a great score in this movie. Reminds me a lot of Bernard Herrmann, actually. Mm, okay. Ain't a question of wanting or not wanting. You're no spring chicken. You're a grown woman with two little youngins. It's a man you need in the house, Willa Harper. What do you think about Icy? Icy is what you see in some of these towns and what you see in some of these religions. She is the woman who is telling other women, you need men. You can't do it on your own. You need God and you need a man. You know, these people who push a certain narrative, a certain point of view, um, because they think they know best. And later we'll hear more of Icy's points of views on marriage and sex. And then later when she leads the lynch mob, that shows you the kind of person that she is, which is completely uh, devoid of of actual principles that are stuck in the ground. They are floating principles for whatever she feels the need to say in certain moments. 
And sometimes those people can be the most corrupt people in a society because they're older and they're teaching the younger people to believe a certain thing, especially in, a, in the female community, older women teaching younger women to be subservient to men, to need men, to need these kinds of things. This has been an age-old thing. And again, we see it popping up all over again uh, in uh, certain religious sections of this country recently. And it's, I don't know, it's just tough to see all that stuff that I thought we walked away from, dealt with, progressed past to come and rear its ugly head again to try and turn women into subservient uh, uh, human beings to men. And it's ridiculous. Um, it's so funny. You, you, you just helped me connect something that I didn't quite connect before, mm. which is you, you'd kind of talked before about how the preacher is using religion to serve his own needs and kind of mm. cherry picking things and, and constructing, you know, the religion bet- betwixt him and God. <laughs> yeah. Well, I actually think that I see is the same thing in a way, oh, yeah. which is that she is constructed. She has an image in her head right. of this is how the small town good lady acts. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to act that way. And I am very confident that I am that thing. And she is not that thing. No. You know, and I would put money on it. That Spoon started this thing. This business came up with this business. And she said to him, you won't be able to run this thing without me. So now oh. I'm going to be half taken over this business and blah, blah, blah. And because he's not that strong of a dude, he let that happen. Gory loves her. He let that happen. Right. And after she says, it's a man you need, Willa Harper, again, we cut to the train. I mean, you couldn't be more symbolic of the man <laughs> heading this way. Yeah. A dark and dangerous man. Mm-hmm. And then we're at nighttime and it's John and Pearl and she asks for a story. And he tells this story about this king who had a son and a daughter. And it is so much the story of them. And one day, this king got taken away by some bad men. And before he got took off, he told his son to kill anyone who tried to steal his gold. And before long, the bad men came back and... And at that moment, we see the shadow of a head and a huge music sting. And we know that it's the preacher is outside their house. Some of these music cues are fantastic for for, um, Powell. They're great. Well, it, there's just such a feeling of dread. Mm-hmm. And I think the way, because of filming him in the shadows and the silhouettes and he's yeah. always in the dark clothes, that he he takes on a mystical sort of character almost, you know, like a fairy tale. Well, yeah. And also, like you talked earlier, German expressionism, right? Nosferatu yep. coming out of the dark. Yep. Uh, Caligari haunting in the corners, you know. If any of you have seen the tragedy of Macbeth, that Joel Cohen was influenced by German expressionism to yep. direct the movie to feel that way. And you see shadows being used as lady macbeth comes out in certain moments as denzel as macbeth comes out in certain moments so yeah the, very well done that's a perfect example by the way of the theatricality i was saying that we mostly have lost yeah yeah you know and like that's a movie where like no they went for it There's oh yeah, not a, yeah yeah um and john looks out and standing there below the street lamp just perfectly framed is robert mitchum and what does he do he starts singing First of all, I didn't know Robert Mitchum had such a nice voice. (laughs) And second of all, this song, which is Leaning on the Everlasting Arms becomes so terrifying as the as the every time you hear it, it's scarier. Yeah. And we just watch him just singing outside of that house. And then it's daytime. 
and we see a steamboat wheel because we're right on the Ohio River. And the, we see the boat going by kind of the small town. And this is an optical. This movie, like Citizen Kane, not to the same degree, has a ton of optical effects. So this is a real river boat that was really shot in Ohio that it's composited onto the to the ranch, the Columbia Ranch. And we get to go meet Uncle Bernie. Come on in and have a cup of coffee, boy. Ain't nobody stole Dad's skiff. Ain't nobody gonna neither as long as Uncle Bernie's around. James Gleason. So he is a recast. They actually shot with another guy, and Lawton just thought he was just too cliched folksy. And so they shot two scenes with him, and he just fired him. Wow. Yeah. That's James Gleason. So, A, I, as soon as I saw James Gleason, I, I was like, I know this guy from something. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's been in tons of stuff. He was an actor and a playwright and a screenwriter. He co-wrote Broadway Melody, which is the second movie ever to win Best Picture. Um, and the place where I, I realized I did know him from is he is the editor in Frank Capper's Meet John Doe. Yep. Um, there's there's your working people. Exactly. Oh, he's so good in that movie. And we're ta- and we're talking about stuff, and we're talking about that he's gonna rep- he you know he lives on the water. He's repairing uh, John's little skiff, and that they're gonna go fishing. Um, and the one thing we see is he gives John a cup of coffee is that he puts a little slug of booze in his own coffee. <laughs> man, man of my years needs a little snort in the morning to heat the boilers. What year is this movie? 55. Oh, wow. So I wonder if Lawton is influenced also a little bit from It's a Wonderful Life, right? Because that's before this movie. Yeah, that's that's forty six or forty seven. We have these conversations in the sky at the beginning of it. I know. I had that thought too. Yeah, right. And then this guy kind of feels like the dude who's minding the lighthouse of that area by the bridge. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, totally. I yeah, there is definitely that feeling. Yeah. I was talking to this stranger up at the boarding house. He knows your dad. Where do you know dad? I want to hide it from you, boy. He knows him in the Moundsville Penitentiary. And it's just you could feel him getting closer. John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, Thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Uh, John heads up the street, looks up at Spoons, and through the window, he sees Pearl sitting on the counter, and there is the preacher with her. 
and the music is heavy, and we just feel what we know. You, you just know where this movie's going, and it's so hard. Yes, I was with Brother Harper right up to the end. Now that I'm no longer employed by the penitentiary, it is my joy to bring this small comfort to his loved one. It's a great lie he comes up with. Yeah, he's a chaplain. Brother. Yeah. Chaplain. And of course, immediately, Icy is sold on this guy. Oh, yeah. She thinks he's awesome. It's a mighty good man would go out of his way to bring a word of cheer to a grieving widow. And John sees the love and hate on his fingers, and he says, Ah, little lad, you're staring at my fingers. Would you like me to tell you the little story of right hand, left hand? The story of good and evil? Before we get into this, let me. Yeah. what do you think of Robert Mitchum's voice, the way he pitches his voice in the film? Oh, I like it because he's he's taking on the barnstorming. He's yeah. taking on the voice that you would hear or had heard in the barnstorming preachers of that time, you know, and uh, Burt Lancaster does a version of it in Elmer Gantry. Sure. Uh, and so, you know, I like how he's using that voice in a certain way. But what's really smart about Robert is oh, Rob, like I know it, but it was really about Robert Mitchum's performance. You mean Bob? Yeah, Bob. Yeah, Bob. Bobby M. Uh, <laughs> is is uh, um, that he messes with his voice to be low, but there's still an undercurrent of like either fear that he's going to be found out, or um, how can I say this? There's almost a childish tone in, in the right at the bottom of his voice. So that although he's doing these things that he's portraying a man, I think he still sees himself as this a young kid, angry young kid, carrying out uh, his vengeance on the world for his own reasons. Which is why when we see later moments with him, when he devolves into this primal animalistic thing, that's, the, that's essentially a child throwing a tantrum. And so he's still that. So although he pitches and modulates his voice to tell these stories and seems important, I think he know he I think he's very well of how fake he is. And so that little element still dances underneath it. So it's it's a phenomenal performance. And Robert said in numerous interviews that this was his favorite performance ever of anything he ever did. I, I love the way you put it because that's how I feel too, because there's something fake yes. about the voice. Well, and it's funny too, because what have we been talking about? We talking about Icy, who's presenting herself as a certain kind of person, yes. and he is presenting himself as what his image in his head is of that preacher, of yes. this kind of preacher. But there's some, there's just a false note, and I'll and I'll and I'll say something. I, there are certain, let's say, I will say the classic used car dealership type salesman. Okay. Yes. Um. Who who I have met, and I'm just instantly like, who the fuck would ever buy anything from this person? They're so obviously only trying to sell me and yet mm -hmm. and yet and there are you know let's say millions of people that are often swayed by this kind of person yes. and it totally works on them and i don't understand it but like i wouldn't buy i wouldn't buy this preacher at all like i'd be like stay the fuck away from me yeah and the crazy yeah and I, it obviously yeah and the crazy part <laughs> of it is um yeah i get your reference the other side of it is those people who follow preachers like that turn around and look at another person who uh, millions of other people follow and go, that's the fake one. He's yeah. the one being fake or she's the one being fake. And it's like, Oh my God, it's, it's mind blowing, you know? And it's obviously sadly the truth about humanity. It's all about uh, subjective perspective and uh, you know, people just see it a certain way and people get taken in by it. And I see certainly gets taken in by it because it fits the narrative of what she believes, right? Yep. Religion to be. Yeah. So, 
The Story of Love and Hate. Here it is. So it's what's so crazy, because I had seen Do the Right Thing many, many times, and I knew enough film stuff to know that it came from The Night of the Hunter. Yeah. I had no idea how exactly, some of the dialogue lines are exactly the same, like structurally. Like, I knew the love and hate hands came from Night of the Hunter. I didn't right. understand that the love and hate monologue comes from Night of the Hunter. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah, yeah. they are really similar. He says, H-A-T-E. It was with this left hand that old brother Kane struck the blow that laid his brother low. It was with this hand that Kane iced his brother. L-O-V-E. You see these fingers, dear hearts, these fingers has veins that run straight to the soul of man. These five fingers, they go straight to the soul of man. And then where Radio Rahim does boxing, yes, the preacher interlaces his fingers. These fingers, dear hearts, is always a warring and a tugging one against the other. And it's the same thing that happens with Radio Rahim, because then love comes back and he starts throwing those punches. He says, but wait a minute, wait a minute. Hot dog loves a winning. Yes, sirree. An old left-hand hate is down for the count. It's so bizarre when someone has like a a pat story thing that they do, you know? Yeah. yeah. Like they're going to go into their spiel. Yeah. And clearly this spiel has worked for him. Yes, of course. Many, many and times. It, yeah. And it works on Ivy. She says, I never heard it better told. I wish every soul in this community could get the benefit. What I mean, what does this mean? Like, what 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 benefit does this mean? Something to you? Well, yeah, I mean, right. You see, not that it means anything to me, but you see that the reason she gravitates to it is because there is this. What does religion always tell you? Um, and I'm speaking specifically with Catholics because that's the only reason I've really had any, any experience with is that everyone's a sinner, everyone needs saving. Everyone, because of the original sin, we're all doomed to go to hell unless we're constantly repenting, constantly going to church, constantly asking for forgiveness. This is the thing. These are the lies they feed you, in my opinion. These are the lies they feed you to keep you in the religion, keep you donating, to keep you stuck to the tides of the religion. And so for Ivy, this totally works because, yes, uh, you know, this is exactly the story you need to be telling because this is exactly what happens and so this works. This is the right way. This is the right path. And so it, it is um, used in that way to fit, uh, once again, a construct of the world that certain people, certain people, not everyone, certain people who adhere to religion have. And not everyone who adheres to religion has this point of view. You know what? I'm going to take back what I said, because now okay. I think that this this speech actually makes tons of sense. <laughs> and I, here's Because here's what I'll say. I think my initial reaction has always yeah. been like, Look, good doesn't always triumph, triumph over evil. Sometimes evil wins. The, the, this idea of like the the battle of love, it just didn't quite make sense to me. But now I'm thinking about this movie yeah, yeah, yeah. and thinking about we have the people like the preacher and like Icy who don't understand who I think Icy is also largely motivated by hate. Obviously, the preacher is motivated by hate. Right, right. Like there's a lot of anger, I think, in Icy that is behind, which we're going to see at the end of the film. Yeah. And who's going to win this battle? Mrs. Cooper, who is motivated by love. Yes. Like she is, in fact, that we, we see the tri This movie is on a lot of levels about the triumph of love. Yes. You know? It is. Yeah. Um, uh, and John, I mean, John, his whole character is protect my sister. Yep. But, you know, honor the, what I swore to my dad. Yep. Honor your father, um, father and mother. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And as soon as he makes a speech, Icy's like, well, you got to stay for picnic. Is is she already planning on roping him in for Willa? Yeah. I mean, the way she says. And you don't get a smidgen of my fudge unless you stay for the picnic. I think in a certain way, this is my opinion, she has a sexual attraction to him. I 100% agree. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's. The way she says, you can't have any of my fudge unless you stay for the picnic. She is clearly of a certain point of view about this situation uh, and wanting to rope in um, Shelly Winters into the situation as well. So, yeah. I think I would put this crassly as much as, more crassly affair. Yes, please. Yeah. I think she wants to vicariously fuck this guy through Shelly, through, through Willa. Oh, yeah. Live vicariously through her. Yeah, yep. I can. That's see what that. I, I think from that moment. Totally. There, the other moment that's really fascinating in the scene is John is giving the preacher kind of a stink eye. Yeah, he knows. He senses it instinctively. Yeah. Mind your manners. Take that look off your face. Act nice. Well, you don't mean no impudence, do you, boy? And he starts talking about how Dad told him all these stories about John and his sisters. What did he tell you? Well, he told me what fine little lambs you and your sister both was. Is that all? What do you think John is asking when he asks, is that all? Well, I think he wants to know. I think John is questioning everything that this man is saying. And so for him, he's wanting to hear specifics. He might at a base level be wanting to hear what his father had to say about him before he was hung. Um, But he also, because he suspects Powell, uh, and is suspicious of him. He wants to hear something specific that would make sense to John that his father said about him that only his father would know. And that then he could begin to maybe trust this guy. But because he keeps speaking in generalities and never says anything specific, John maintains his suspicion of this guy the whole time. Well, I think I, I agree, totally agree with that. But I think there is something actually specific that he wants to hear, which is, did dad tell you where the money? Is? Oh, right. Yeah. Take this off my shoulders. Right. Yeah. And of course, that's a great point, Steve, because it connects to the ending there when he is like slamming the doll on Powell and saying, take it, take it all. I don't want to carry this anymore. Well, and I think it's like if dad, you know, because he's going, can I trust you? And if dad, if he knows that the money is in the doll, well, right. then it means that dad trusted him, which means I can trust him. Yeah. You yeah. know, good point. Yeah, yeah. Um, So. <laughs> It ends up he does want some fudge, I guess, because he is at the picnic. Bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. By the way, uh, the the visual image for this was Charles Lawton wanted to reference uh, the George Surratt Sunday afternoon in Le Grand, Grand Chateau. And if you look, there are parasols in the background and the lighting is it's beautiful. It looks really beautiful. Yeah. And the preacher is enthusiastically singing along with everyone there. Of course, got to make. And Willa seems very uncomfortable, and Icy is talking up Harry Powell, the preacher. Take him to settle down with some nice woman and make a home for himself. And what we find out with Willa is part of what upsets her is that the money was never recovered, and that's like hanging over her. The evil of the money, the fact that the townspeople all want to know where the money is, that people think she might be hiding the money. It's just upsetting. And the preacher heads over to talk to Willa. And Icy then goes to talk to the other ladies of the town. And then she says, and it's it's funny, it's so, this whole, everything Icy says seems all about sex to me. Yes. A husband's one piece of store goods you never know till you get it home and take the paper off. (laughs) 
what a horrible way to view men, right? Yeah. And in the background, we see, again, it's just beautifully lit. The uh, cinematography is Stanley Cortez. And Stanley Cortez shot Magnificent Ampersons for Orson oh, Welles. Well, there you go. Orson d- recommended him to Lawton. Lawton had also worked with him a bunch as an actor. Oh, nice. Stanley Cortez is also the old, remember we talked about it in Chinatown because he's the guy that Roman Polanski fired <laughs> because he was too slow, which and too just old school and argumentative with him. Well, to be fair, he was older. So yeah, yeah. Did Ben Harper ever tell you what he'd done with the money he stole? My dear child, don't you know? And then we go back to icy. When you've been married to a man 40 years, you know all that don't amount to a hill of beans. What is all that, just to be real clear? I think it's uh, sexual desire and all of that. That's what I think, too. She says, and Walt is there listening to this, by the way. Yeah. I've been married to my Walt that long, and I swear in all that time, I just lie there thinking about my canning. So she's saying to these ladies in front of her husband, when we're having sex, I just think about other stuff while lying there. She's saying, just lay there, let them have sex with you, and uh, you can just drift off and think of other things. This is essentially, how can I say this correctly? Oh, man, I'm walking into a minefield, but I'm going to say it. <laughs> this is, t- yeah, I'm tiptoeing into it, but this is essentially a softer version of advocating for sexual assault. Like, you can, she's a, a woman of the community telling other young women don't let sex or the sexual desire for somebody be the driving force or any part of the decision you make in marrying a man, you know, and who cares if you're not attracted to him, you can just get through the sex part and think about other things while he's, while he's on top of you rather than using the act that is um, supposed to be the highest form of lovemaking, which is even specified in the Bible as the highest form of lovemaking using it in a certain way uh, that's positive and helpful for the relationship and elevates the relationship. She's turning it into what puritanical people do with religion, which is turn sex into something disgusting and horrible. So first of all, as I'm listening to this in the movie, I'm going like, holy shit, I can't believe they're having this. This is a really, because it's not just that they're referencing sex obliquely. Yeah. They're referencing how she has sex. Yes, exactly. Like that, because her talk saying, I just lay there and think about canning. It's not that I'm picturing it exactly, but I understand like how they're having sex. You know, I can't think of another movie in the fifties in the U S that's doing a thing like that. And then this is the other thing. And this relates to what you were just saying Mm. is, is that I don't, that's what is, that is clearly what she's saying. Mm -hmm. Like sex isn't important. Don't get hung up, up on it. But I think what is inside her is actually the opposite, which is she's filled with sexual desire. Yes. She's totally not attracted to her husband. Right. And her only way of – and so she maybe she gets through it by having – you know, thinking about canning. Yeah. But what she really goes is she really wants to have some great sex and probably with that preacher that's over yes. there right yeah. now. But what she says is – A woman's a fool to marry for that. That's something for a man. The good Lord never meant for a decent woman to want that. Not really want it. It's all just a fake and a pipe dream. You'd be surprised how many people, and I say this sarcastically, in religion, who who preach, practice what I say, not what I do. Uh, And you're right. She would absolutely sneak off and have sex with Powell if she could uh, in this situation. And as you very astutely pointed out, which I never even caught, 
uh, is her living vicariously through Willow, which is why she pushes Willow to be with him. And I imagine there are scenes missing where she asks for details about their sex life. <laughs> um, oh yeah. In, in, in the most like nice, so, you know, kind of, yes. Is, are you doing it right? You know, tell me exactly what happens and I'll guide you and help you to have better sex with him. Yeah. Well, I, where I think it's kind of more like the sort of, Oh, so, and how was everything on your honeymoon? You know, was the, was the bed comfortable, you know, just sort of like trying to get in there to uh, have, ask the question. Uh, well, and I think too, like, I think she had a certain romantic belief about sex before yeah. she got married. Yes. And she was horribly, horribly disappointed mm-hmm. in, you know, sorry, Walt, like, you know, but, but like horribly disappointed. And then that has caused her to have this attitude of it's all just a fake pipe dream. Right. Yeah. You know? Um, and by the way, the Walt reaction shot as he's hearing his wife spew this stuff. Yeah. And then uh, Willa calls John over and she's just beaming. Mr. Powell has something to tell you. The night before your father died, he told me what he did with that money. That money's at the bottom of the river, wrapped around a 12-pound cobblestone. And there's this little smile from John. Yep. Because that little smile goes, I, I got you pegged now. Yeah. You know, I know you're a liar. Yep. But Willa is thrilled. Thank you, Harry. I feel clean now. My whole body's just a quivering with cleanness. And he, she walks away, and suddenly John's alone with the preacher. Come here. Your tie is crooked. And he straightens his tie. Yeah. And it is just so creepy, mm-hmm. this moment. I thought, because of course, we haven't seen the, neither of us had seen the film. I thought in that moment he was going to tie it real tight and like choke mm. it and say some some kind of threat, but he, he does not do that. Well, that's what I think, though, is so great about this character as a villain is because he's just – his presence is just slowly moving in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, well, Night of the Hunter. Hunter yeah. doesn't overdo it. A good yeah. hunter waits. You know? Well, it's, it's funny. We were talking about this. I can't remember which movie we were talking about it with, but of that we've sort of lost – dread as a thing mm. because we want things because yeah. movies move so much faster yeah. and dread doesn't work at high speed you know right you have to go a little slow because we want to get to the big jump scare and the big action and all that stuff and yeah. then we don't we don't have dread you know uh we have a scene with uh uncle bernie and then we john again leaves and again he walks by spoons and now he sees mom and icy hugging and when we see mom and icy hugging we know yeah he gets home goes inside the hallway calling out if asking if anyone's there and the shot and this is in a lot of the movie is in this confined hallway space so that it feels very very cramped there's a lot of shadows and then we hear good evening john can you imagine you go home to your house and this weird guy is there with this deep voice yeah and shout out to um lawton who is shooting this thing with cortez um it very much as you said steve already the German expressionism and all and and all of that, but and silent movie, but also there's a little noir in here with the way he's using shadows and and light, um, and certain bright sections filled with light and other sections really really dark, and the way he's playing the menace and the dread as you mentioned by using that technique. I had a little talk with your mother tonight, John, and your mother decided it might be best for me to let you uh, know the news. Your mother told me she wanted me to be a daddy to you and your sister. Now, we knew the movie was going here, right? Yes, of course, 100%. And and so it's not that it's a surprise. Yeah. But it is so, because 
the the trap that John is in yeah. is so scary. Yeah. Because you're like, what are you gonna do? By the way, for some reason they shot the close-ups of Robert Mitchum on a different day than they shot the close-ups of John. And I think part of it, a lot of it is this is actually Charles Lawton playing with John. Oh, wow. You know, as the off because he did a lot of the off-camera stuff. Right. You ain't my dad. You'll never be my dad. And I love that that the preacher just ignores that. When we get back, we're all going to be friends and share our fortunes together, John. And John says, and it's so terrible when it happens. He says, you think you can make me tell, but I won't, I won't, I won't. And then John realizes that by saying that, he just revealed that he knows. And he claps his hand over his mouth. And it's just like, shit. <laughs> and he goes. Again, as you said, increasing the dread. Yep. This is a great moment to increase the dread for the audience. Is like now, oh no, you know. The smirk on the preacher's face of just sort of like, I gotcha. I know, now I know. Tell me what, boy? Nothing. We're not keeping secrets from each other, are we, little lad? And John runs away. And, we, and as he's running upstairs, the preacher says, We've got a long time together, boy. And then we cut to John and Pearl waving goodbye to the car. And then they're alone. And what's so interesting, and this happens through a lot of the movie, mm-hmm. is the camera is really at kid height. We're seeing the yeah, world yeah. through the kid's perspective. In fact, one of the things they did in terms of part of the ideas behind the sort of expressionistic design is they went, well, this is really about how kids see the world. Yeah. And kids miss a lot of details. So they didn't put all the details in. They made the world more iconic because that's how a kid would remember it. Yeah. Mr. Powsar, Daddy, then can I tell him about? You promised Dad you wouldn't tell. I love Mr. Powell lots and lots, John. Again, <laughs> fucking dread, man. <laughs> right, adding another element where this is yet another female energy that might succumb to Powell, right? Yeah. This next scene is amazing. Mm. It's the honeymoon. We have Willa looking at herself in the mirror, getting ready. And again, the sexuality of this film, I think is really palpable. I think it's really clear that she wants to have sex, that she is excited and ready to have sex with this man she married. And look, she's been convinced, right? I mean, she told, I see that she wasn't ready. I see was the one that pushed her. I see is the one that pushed him onto her. Icy is the one that was constantly in her ear to accept this man. And Willa, because she is in a terrible position here, having to raise two youngins, her husband was a, a criminal who stole money, the money is missing, he got hung. Um, at, a, at this time during the Depression, she is in a very tough situation and can, and can be manipulated because she's young, too, by an older energy, the, the, like you said, the... the uh, I don't know what do you call it. The female town person, lead town person. Yeah, I, you know, I know her name, but I'm saying what she stands oh. for in the town, mm-hmm. and like this kind of like the town elder. That's it. She's like the town elder, telling her what she needs to do. So because she's young, she and can be manipulated at this point because of all this going on with her, she goes along with it. So when you see her in the bathroom, she is certainly preparing herself to give herself to him. But I also think she's also having a little bit of a battle within herself and convincing herself to do this. And I, that's what I read from Shelley's acting. And I could be way wrong. 
But certainly you can see the tender way she's kind of touching herself and prepping herself and looking at herself in the mirror, making herself presentable for this man because she feels so free because this man exposed where the money is and she thinks he told the truth. So now she's ready to give herself to him, you know, but she's been talked into it. What's really into another theme in this film. And it's fun. It's funny because this film continues to get deeper as we're having this conversation. Yeah, Not that yeah, I yeah. didn't already think it was deep, right. but like, I was like, Oh, women and romantic love and sex is also a theme of this movie, yeah. which goes all the way to Mrs. Cooper and Ruby and what's going on with Ruby and her situation. And, and, that Mrs. Cooper ends up with all these kids because women fall in love with men. And so, right. you know what I mean? Like, right. so, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, that, so that, that's a big part of it. And right now I think Will is in this sort of romantic She's in like the moment that Icy had before she had sex with Walt the first time yeah. of like thinking something, this is going to be special and romantic and fulfilling. And as she's looking at herself in the mirror in this sort of romantic way, we hear a music cue come on, which, which is a waltz. Here's one of the interesting things is that Lawton had both the editor and Walter Schumann, the composer, on set all the time. Oh. I've heard of some circumstances where you have an editor on the set. And frankly, I think if you're a first-time director and have never edited a film, that's a smart move because an editor can tell you some of the things you might need that you might not know that you need. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not an editor. I've never heard of a director, can't think of one, where they had the composer on the set. But what happened was, as Shelley Winters is moving in this scene, the, the composer says, or, or Lawton says, it's just, you're, she's moving almost like it's a waltz. And mm -hmm. Schumann says it is a waltz. And that is how he composed the music for the scene, by watching Shelley Winters' movement when she did that. And then that waltz became her theme throughout the rest of the film. Oh, interesting. And as she's about to go in, she touches the preacher's coat, which is hanging on the door, and reaches into the pocket and finds the knife and smiles and says, men. Yeah. The knife that is going to kill her right. later on in this film. Yeah, ironically. She walks into the bedroom. Preacher is lying on his side, his back to her. Harry. And he reaches out his hand back to her. And I can't remember now if it's the love hand or the hate hand. But she thinks it's a per such a perfect movie moment because she thinks that he's reaching for her. Yeah. And then he says, fix that window shade. And it's just such a crushing small moment. It's a crushing rejection. And then he says, I was praying. I'm sorry. I didn't know. I, I thought. You thought, Willa, that the moment you walked in that door, I'd start to paw on you and that a abominable way that men are supposed to do on their wedding night this is such a horrible rejection yeah and the thing is i think that is pretty much what she thought he was going to do yeah of course 100 i think it's time we made one thing perfectly clear willa marriage to me represents a blending of two spirits in the sight of heaven and she falls to the bed weeping he shames her yeah he uses religion to shame her right yep so many people use religion to shame other people and break them down. And as I said earlier, Charles Lawton, one of the big motivating decisions to Great make point. Movie, right? Was to yeah. showcase how religion can shame people to make them ashamed of who they are. And in that moment, in one of her weakest, most vulnerable moments, you see someone who is faking uh, being a preacher, using it, using religion, because he knows it, he knows religion, can quote it and all of that. Using it to destroy this woman's spirit 
to be able to control her, you know, and make her embarrassed and ashamed of herself. And that's sometimes what people use religion to do. Of course, there are positive things, but there are people who use it in negative ways. I never connected the shaming that the preacher is doing to Willa in this moment and the shaming of Charles Lawton's homosexuality until you just said that. Yeah. I I never connected those things, but like, and it's just so, you know, it's like the idea, these are the things that I just think I don't understand about religion of like, uh, and shame, original sin and shame of sexuality just seems like a crazy one to me. Yeah. You know, a question for you Mm. with all these other widows that the preacher has hooked up with, (laughs) did he sleep with any of them? No. I don't think so either. I don't think, I think he's never had sex because I think that's another way that they emasculate him. Yeah. They symbolize something he can't have. Even when they want to give themselves to him, he doesn't take it. Get up, Willa. Hi, Get up. And now I think she's scared. Yes. In addition to being shamed. Now go look at yourself yonder in that mirror. By the way, there's a weird moment where you see his reflection, Robert Mitchum's reflection in the mirror very briefly. Yeah. And he steps out of it as she steps in. And it totally looks like a mistake to me. Oh, okay. It just look, I just, my editor eye. Yeah. (laughs) Sees, looks, it looks to me like an actor stepping out of the way, not a character. Right. You know. You see the body of a woman, the temple of creation and motherhood. You see the flesh of Eve that man since Adam has profaned. So right there, it's just so crazy what he's doing to her. That body was meant for begetting children. It was not meant for the lust of men. And then he says, you've already had two. You're not going to get any more children from me. Because he also says, like, well, did you want more children? She goes, no. And then, yeah, you're not getting from me. So part of why we know stuff about how Charles Lawton directed this I have a whole story to tell you. Oh, please. So after Charles Lawton died, uh, Elsa Lanchester lived a long time. Mm. And 30 years after the making of this movie, she realized she had a bunch of stuff that she didn't know what to do with. So she called the American Film Institute and said, hey, you know, I got a whole bunch of the rushes from Night, the Night of the Hunter. Are you guys interested in them? Like reel after reel after reel of footage. And they go, of course, we're interested in it. And so guy at the AFI, he's in Washington, D.C., and he calls up one of the people in L.A. where Elsa is and says, hey, go pick this up and you guys check it out and you can use it. And about a month later, he calls up AFI, which is obviously a film school, and he says, hey, have you gotten anything? You know, he thought maybe that the students would enjoy looking at the rushes and they can learn some things about the film. And he says, have you gotten any good use out of that? The rushes from the Night of the Hunter. And the guy goes, oh, yeah, it's great. We've cut it up and using it for leader which means that they're just using it as scratch. Um, and he goes, oh, my God, no. Oh my God. <laughs> right? So they're like um, Pearl cutting up the bills into little That's exactly, oh That's exactly what they're doing. So he goes, okay, ship all, let's ship all this stuff to D.C. So they ship all the film to D.C. And these are like sm- small clips. These aren't like just like a whole reel that says reel number 17. It's like little yeah. pieces of film. And they also have little pieces of mag, magnetic tape, which is what the audio was recorded on. But it's not labeled correctly. So there isn't any way to know that this audio goes with this piece of film. Right. So they spend literally the next 20 years trying to figure out which piece of audio goes with which piece of film and put it together. And they end up with eight hours of footage of, of just the, and, and again, 
Lawton shot whole reels of film. Yeah, so it's yeah. a lot of listening to Lawton talk to all the actors. And they actually put together, which is on, by the way, John, your Criterion Blu-ray oh. is a two and a half hour do- documentary that they put together of this footage. That's the second disc. That's the second disc. Oh, damn. well, then I can't wait to watch that. Well, and, and you know how you've always been saying you always me, the editor says, I don't want to watch that stuff. And you're always the one who says, I want to see all the stuff I could possibly see. Yeah. Well, this is your this is your chance, man. Oh, great. And and so I and, and it's a really interesting documentary. It's really interesting to listen to how Lawton is directing these actors. But you remember how I said there was one actor who had a rough time. He was not nice to Shelley Winters. Wow. Well, no. Yeah. And and so. It, while he's doing this scene, hmm. Lawton is, she's standing looking in the mirror and Lawton, Lawton is insulting her. He's demeaning her. He's saying all sorts of terrible things about her. And what we don't know is, was that just what he was doing to get her in the right space to play right. this moment? Or if he was really being mean to her, I will say he was pretty harsh with her in other scenes as well. Not not demeaning, but just do it again. And you could see Shelly. You'll watch. If you watch the documentary, you'll see what I'm talking about. But in my mind, I'm seeing Shelly Winters get frustrated. And it's, it's hard, you know. That's a shame. And back to the scene. After we agree we're not going to have kids, which means we're not going to have sex. Yeah. He turns off the light. He gets back in bed. All right. You can get in bed now. Stop shivering. Stop shivering is rough, too. Yeah. Really rough. And, he, and she's in the shadows praying. Help me to get clean. So I can be what Harry wants me to be. And of course, we know that he's a serial killer. Yes. You know, and and she's going to try to get clean so she can be what he wants. Ugh. We're off fishing uh, with Uncle Bernie. You don't need to go into the whole scene. But I will say that the scene ends with him saying, I don't know what's wrong with your house. But all remember, Cap, if you're in trouble, holler and come around. Uncle Bernie's your friend. And so I go, when I see this scene, oh, thank God. You know? That's what you thought? Yeah, I thought, oh, he's got an ally, hopefully. I mean, I, I knew it wasn't going to go well, and maybe Uncle Bernie's yeah, going to get killed Scatman Crothers style. Burton Balsam and Psycho, that's what I thought. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> Bernie's going to die. But just the idea that John is not totally all alone in all this. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Made yeah. me feel better. Yeah. Cut to a revival. And again, it's German expressionism, you know? We've got these flames, we got these people chanting, and we have Willa now in dark clothes, very emotional, and she is the center of the attraction. This reminds me a little bit, and I don't know if I'm wrong on this, but it reminds me a little bit of the Oxbow incident. Was that the one where they kind of I've never seen that. Oh, okay. I I believe that's the one where they have something that... Oh, no, wait. No, no. This reminds me of Inherit the Wind. Remember when... um, uh, uh, BJ and the Bear, whatever the fuck, Paul, uh, what's his name? The actor, uh, he is—he's the father of the girl, and he's doing mm. the sermon, and he curses Darren from Bewitched in that sermon. <laughs> you see the lights, you see the flames, and everything. Right. It's—he's caught up in the power of God to manipulate these people to believe what he believes, right? And you see, there's this is like a microcosm of that scene from Inherit the Wind. Um, I, I just like that you have BJ and the bear That's going what after Darren from Bewitched. <laughs> I'm so sorry to everybody who might be related to these people who might be listening. I don't remember their names all the time. So, yeah. Um, you're still better at it than me. I don't remember any names. Unless I have it written down in my notes in front of me. I'm not going to remember any names. <laughs> um, but what's so crazy to me is 
I don't. So Willa tells a story. Yeah. Which is not true. But what I go like, well, parts of it maybe are true, or maybe she, maybe the preacher has made gotten her to believe that yes, these are true. That's what it is. Which one of you can say, as I can say, that you drove a good man to murder because I kept a hound in him for perfume and clothes and face paint? Did she ever hound him for perfume? No, and and f- no, what so she probably as a normal human being would do in a relationship. She probably saw something and wanted to have it or sure. mentioned how it'd be nice to have something like that because people aspire to things. It's a natural human element. But of course, he took that little nugget because he's an evil, evil man and manipulated her because sadly, she's not as strong minded as other people because she was manipulated by Icy to be in this relationship. Now she's being manipulated by him to shame herself, to make herself feel ashamed because he hates women so much. He has, she has taken on that hate to say that to everybody, you know? Well, and what did dad say about her at the beginning of the movie? Don't tell mom. She doesn't have any common sense. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think, you know, Willa, not maybe not the smartest person around, but what's so interesting is watching this is that a, we've got the preacher in the background, the, the, yeah, you know, who's basically the puppeteer here. And then you have all the townspeople, including icy, including icy, chanting and eating all of this up. Oh, that's where the Lord stepped in. He said the Lord to that man, you take that money and you throw it in the river. In the river! Now, you compare this scene to later on in the movie, oh, yeah. in the, in the um, lynching scene, who else is in the crowd urging everybody to go crazy? I see. Yep. So there is no difference between a revival that is celebrating a woman shaming herself and essentially lynching herself, her old self, to become this other person. Um, and you look at the later scene where they are calling for a lynching of this man who symbolized uh, fakeness in religion simply because it, he was found out. And none of them knew about it, or none of them had any common sense other than uh, Icy's husband there, who had a feeling something was wrong with this guy, but didn't follow through with it. So, you know, you see, there's no difference in my mind. I think he purposely kept those scenes and shot them very much the same so that you would make those connections when you're watching them in the movie. Well, and I have another thought that maybe is, is, is crazy, but I think. There is, I don't know how to quite articulate this, but there is a connection between Icy's disappointment in sex with Walt, like build up and then disappointment. Yeah. Her attraction to Preacher that she sets Willa up with, then then her disappointment in that, and then the build up, the almost like orgiistic thing that's going on in this revival meeting yeah, yeah, and her desire to kill that guy because she feels betrayed by him and the lynching. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Like there, if, yeah. Yeah. if she wasn't so attracted to him and so disappointed in her own sex life, I don't know that she'd be yelling lynch him at the end of the movie. Well, she, yeah, right. And she's, li- she wants to lynch him to make up for all the men yes. who have disappointed her through her life. Yes. He wants Lynch, that symbolic representation of all of that. She doesn't hate men necessarily because of how she fawns over Powell, but it's the feeling that her decisions 
she's made a couple of really big decisions in the point of view of the movie where she's been completely wrong about the situations. And this is the thing is like, and, and I know, you know, obviously we've already spoiled the end that there's going to be a lynch mob at the end of this movie, but yeah, but like I find the people of the revival meeting and the lynch mob basically as scary as I find the preacher. Do you know what I yes. mean? Right. Right. Because they're, because they're in numbers. Um, and you know, when people get together in numbers and carry out violent acts and, uh, you know, try to force their way, uh, to carry out their own brand of justice and bring a gallows and try to lynch people. Yeah. They're not the good guys. (laughs) So I just want to make that really clear or the good people. There were men and women in that crowd, both in what I'm referencing and in this movie. So, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So we cut back to the house. (laughs) I really didn't see this conversation going in the the direction you and I have now both gone in a little bit. Uh, But I don't think we're wrong. So so, uh, we're back at the house and we see Pearl sitting in front of the house with the doll. And she has pulled the money out of the doll and spread it around. And not only that, and of course, it's you weren't allowed to film real money at this time, so it's not actual U.S. dollars. But not only is she spreading it around, but she's cutting little paper dolls out of the bills. And see, it just, it, 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 it made me almost like hurt my stomach. I was so upsetting. Yeah. Because she's a little girl. She doesn't understand. She doesn't understand these life and death shit that she's playing with. She doesn't know. She's just playing with the stuff, you know? Yeah. There's such a, as you said, the dread, right? Seeing all that money laying about. Because if you haven't seen the movie, that scene has all kinds of dread. Because you're like, oh, my God, is he coming around the corner? And Oh, my God. How many of these bills has she cut up to be these little dolls? Oh, my God. You know? So, yeah. And John comes out. Of course, he's shocked. Hi. I didn't tell no one. And John starts with trying to get the money back in. And you just feel it coming. John. Oh, yes? What are you doing, boy? And he steps out on that stoop. And I'm looking, and it's one of those shots where I'm looking and going, what exactly is the eye line? Like, can he, you know, how dark is it? And what, you know, and you're coming from a lighted room into a dark space. Maybe you can't see that well. And I'm going, is he going to see it? Is he going to, can he see it? And they, they're stuffing stuff in. What's you playing with? Um, Pearl's junk. Mom gets mad when she plays out here and don't put it away. Man, John has got nerves of steel. John is a smart kid in this yeah. situation. And he's older, so, you know, a little more, seen a little more of the world, so to speak. And they get the doll packed back up. And I love the way they do this shot because they're walking towards him. Yeah. And the camera tilts down. And you, there's like a weird, like, why are we looking at his feet? Yeah. And there's a little breeze and a couple of bills blow by his feet. He's just like, holy shit. Again, the dread. Again, the dreads. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, fuck if he looks down. Shit. He looks down, that's it. You know? Uh, and they walk by, and, and then he stops John. Your mother tells me you tattled on me. She said you told her I asked where that money was hidden. That wasn't very nice, boy. Have a heart. I mean, this is, again, it's, yeah, it's just the dread. Well, it doesn't matter. It's your word against mine. It's me your mother believes. Yeah. But he's talking to him like 
he's of the same age mentally as this kid, right? That's what I'm saying. This kid, mm-hmm. this guy is in a state of arrested development. Powell is. And in that moment, have, when he says to the kid, have a heart, like it's such an interesting equal thing to say to somebody, you know, have a heart. Like you have this power, have a heart. And so I find that to be a fascinating part of the exchange with him and John. And of course, mom does side with the preacher because John's lying in bed and she says, John, you always make up that lie. There is no money. Why can't you get that through your head? And now we're back with Icy and we're complaining about how stubborn John is. They talk a little bit more and then Willow's heading off and they kind of ask her to, you know, you should stay longer next time. Uh, And she turns back with a smile of just a real smile on her face. And she says, I'm needed to keep peace and harmony betwixt them. It's my burden and I'm proud of it, Icy. And she walks off into the mist. Back home. It's Preacher, John, and Pearl. Where's the money hid? I don't know. She thinks that money's at the bottom of the river. But you and me, we know better, don't we, little lad? I don't know nothing. Well, never mind, boy. Summer's young yet. And then he calls over Pearl, and he picks her up. And, of course, John can't do anything. Yeah. And you could watch him start to try to turn Pearl against John. John's a fellow who likes to keep secrets. I'll tell you a secret. Yes? I know your daddy. He said, you tell my little girl, Pearl, that there's to be no secrets between her and you. Yes? And Pearl's eating it up. What secret shall I tell? Ooh, uh, what's your name? <laughs> You're just fooling. My name's Pearl. <laughs> it's very cute. Where's the money hid? And John hits him in the head with a hairbrush. Or throws a hairbrush and hits him in the head. He's frustrated. He has no way to stay. He keeps looking around the room of what to throw and then grabs the hairbrush and throws it at him. Or the shoe brush. And he's yelling at Pearl that she swore and that she can't tell. Yeah. And Pearl's on Team Preacher at this point. He says, yeah. he says, You hit Daddy with a hairbrush. Now, you see, we just can't have anything to do with John. And he picks her up and takes her away. And John, as they start to leave, goes for the doll. Yeah. But she grabs it and the doll goes with him. And the music cue is really good. It, it builds up to this, yep. to him trying to reach for the doll, which is great with the dread and, and tension. Outside, we see that mom is walking up and she can overhear what's happening inside. And what we hear is, John's just plumb bad through and through. John's bad. Yes, John's bad. Um, and the music that plays there is actually John's theme, just to reinforce that point. Where's the money hit? John's bad. Where's the money hid? Tell me, you little retro, I'll tear your arm off. And she runs away from him, and Willa is right there. By the way, Willa stands outside listening to this. And my thought in my mind is I thought she was he was going to sexually assault her. But no, mm-hmm. his, his anger towards women is violence always. It's not yeah. about sex. And so when he twists her arm and she screams, that just makes all the sense in the world. And Willa is so, like, Shelly plays this so interesting, like she can't process it. And yeah. that might have and I'll watch the documentary, maybe Charles yelling at her again, so she's not even sure what to play. But, like, it's an interesting moment because she stops, looks at him kind of absentmindedly, and then goes towards her daughter in the other room. So it's an interesting moment, yeah. We cut back to the spoons where it's obvious that Walt thinks something's going on. Oh yeah. In this situation. Something's off. Yeah. 
Uh, but of course, he doesn't do anything. And then we cut back to the bedroom at the house. Will is lying on the bed, and this is totally looks like a chapel. Yep. You know, and it's it's interesting too. Again, it's that German expressionism thing. Yeah. The, there's no all the set is just a backdrop, which creates that triangular shape and the light and a bed in the foreground. There's not there's not even there's not three walls. There's just one backdrop. That's it. Yeah. It's very much a design. She's in the bed and her, she's lit like there's a halo around her. Amen. Are you through praying? Okay. What do you think is going on with Willa in this moment? Like, what's happening here? I think in that moment with um, the daughter, because she heard him mm-hmm. asking her about where the money is, she now realizes that he did marry her to find out where the money right. is. There's no love here. And she tried to, as you said, as we saw earlier in the scene where she says, after he shames her, like, help me, looking at God, help me to be pure enough for Harry to want me. Now that she realizes what he really wants, I think she, in this moment, she is surrendering herself to God's will. It, what she thinks to be God's will. Right. And lying in the bed and the way um, Lawton shoots her with the silhouette of the light through the what looks, as you said, Steve, very astutely as a chapel. Um, and the way she's body positioned with her hands over her um, chest and arms over her chest, she's essentially surrendering herself to him. And she has found some purity, which is what she's constantly been saying in the film to this point is that I don't feel clean. I don't feel clean. Her lying in that bed, understanding what's happening, realizing where what happened here and what's going on with Powell and the way he's affecting her, she has reached her cleanliness. And what's that phrase? Cleanliness is next to godliness. So in a way, she's found herself redeemed. And in this moment, she's surrendering herself because she doesn't resist. She doesn't fight him off. She doesn't do anything. She just lies there um, completely aware of what's going to happen and surrendering herself to it. I think you're totally right. And I, and I, I, I was really struggling with the scene, but I think you, I think you've really put your finger on what it is because it's such a strange action or or lack of action that she's taken. Well, and I think, I mean, to go like, Oh my God, I've accidentally married a horrible evil person who is not only only interested in my money, but is threatening my kids. Right. And therefore I feel clean and closer to God now is a really weird that's strange, you know? Yeah. But but I think that seems like what it is, you know? Yeah. Is that well, she's because it's the truth. I guess it's the truth that she's yeah. now found, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and it's also you can look at it another way too, in that, and especially if we look at through the prism of of Lawton and um uh his struggles of being gay in the church and all of that. Uh in a way, you know, it is that that, that kind of thing where you're surrendering yourself or or you realize that the the people who carry out or practice this religion are using it in such a way to shame you and destroy you um you realize it's an awakening in a way of what's happening and she is uh, she has been awakened to what's going on and is surrendering herself to whatever's going to happen to herself right well yeah the power there because it is the only time in the movie where willa makes a decision for herself well, and, and I, I think there is, I think that's to, totally true. And there's a, there's a like, oh, you made me feel like I was the asshole. Right. But you're right. the asshole. You're the asshole. 
I'm actually, I, I didn't do anything wrong, you know? Right. I mean, the fact that she doesn't fight for her children or try to get the kids the fuck out of there, yeah. the surrender is just like not the best decision. Yeah, I know. I don't disagree with you there. Sure. And what's so interesting, it's all ritualistic what the preacher is doing at this point. Because he like reaches his hand high up in the air and slaps her. I never told you throw it in the river, did he? It's not like he slaps her in anger. It's like he slaps her as part of this ritual almost. Yeah. The children know where it's hidden. John knows. Is that it, Harry? Lawton made her do this like 20 times, that one line. And he's just sitting next to her. You could hear his voice. She's lying in bed. He's like, do it again. Do it again. Do it more like this, more like this. And you could see it again. You know, you'll you'll watch it and see just her eyes. Because, and this is the real problem with the do it again and not having the reset set. Because if it's yeah. one after another, just the same line over and over again, yeah. how do you how do you not get lost as an actor? You know, it's a great point. Yeah, but and and the slap has no effect. It doesn't. She doesn't get scared. She doesn't react in pain. And it's still here amongst us, tainting us. And then there's the, it's it's like the preacher goes over and stands in the light. Yeah, and is looking up. And it's this moment of ritual. It's, it looks like a ceremony now. Right, right. But that ain't the reason why you married me. I know that much. Because the largest one let it be. He made you marry me. So you could show me the way in the life. And the salvation of my soul. He grabs the knife and he goes towards her and the music builds and he lifts the knife over her head. And there's this moment, which is just perfect, where her eyes look up and see the knife and you can see that she knows and then we're out. She accepts her fate. Yeah. And the thing is, what's great about Harry here and the performance, he looks into the light. This is the first time I think Harry actually hears God and God is damning him. And that's why he takes, I think, a little bit of the shade to cover mm. some of the light. Because oh. he must stay in the darkness. He can only exist in the darkness. And so it's almost like what um, oh, uh, uh, Lucifer looking at God and cannot stay in the light for too long and must hide himself. And that's what he's doing. And he must kill her because she has revealed him naked to God and what he actually is. And he cannot handle that. And yet again, a woman has gotten the best of him. So mm. he must kill this woman because she has gotten the best of him. You know? And, and the scene is absolutely beautifully lit. It's yeah. gorgeous. And here's the interesting thing that uh, Stanley Cortez said. He said in his entire career, he only worked with two directors who understood light and they were Orson Welles and Charles Lawton. Wow. Yep. Damn. Damn. Yep. People want to people want to forget these movies, Steve. People want to eliminate these movies, Steve. It drives me insane. 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 It doesn't mean there aren't incredible filmmakers working today, of course. But you cannot eliminate or remove these films that are the foundational building blocks that anybody can have access to and learn to become a filmmaker from. And it's just so frustrating to see how many people and read the statistics of how many people are walking away from classic films or not watching them or dismissing them as old, out of date, fuddy duddy stuff. When in fact, there's so much wealth to get from these films. You know? 
it's also why it's so ridiculous that we don't make movies in black and white. Yes. Because you could do things with light in a black and white film that you can't do in a color film. And we did actually, you mentioned one recently is that there's the Macbeth um, of, of Joel Cohn. And then there's also Kenneth Branagh's Belfast. Yeah. You know, and it's like, look what you could do with black and white, black, you know, like black and white got treated like it was, Oh, we couldn't afford color. That's the way. No, black and white is beautiful. Yeah. If it's shot by brilliant people like Lawton and Stanley Cortez. Yeah. There's no way raging bull is as great as it is without it being in black and white. There's no way. Um, we wipe to the kids in bed. We hear a car starting and John gets up and looks out of the window into this misty night and there's flames and something's going on and we don't know what is going on. And he goes back to bed and the camera fades out. And we, the audience, knows that the world of John and Pearl is forever changed. And at this moment, I think it's a good time to end part one of our exploration of the Night of the Hunter, and the people we most have to thank for doing this episode and, and introducing John and I to this new film, which is amazing, is Kevin Robinson and Siobhan Raupak. Uh, Thank you so, so much for your thank support you on Patreon. And we can't wait to get into part two. Of course, we'd love to hear what you think of The Night of the Hunter. Maybe this is your first time seeing the film, too. Mm-hmm. As always, you can visit us on Facebook. You can go to Cine underscore Files on Twitter. You can go to the Cinephiles podcast on Instagram and you could subscribe to the show on Apple podcast on Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, all of those places. If you're on YouTube, leave a comment. We love to interact with you there. If you're on Apple podcasts and have a moment to leave a five-star review or any review, but we prefer the five-star ones, that would be fantastic. You can buy or stream the night of the hunter along with every other movie we've ever reviewed on cinephiles.net. And you can reach me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram, John, where could they reach you? You can always reach me at the Roca says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, the Outlaw Nation on Twitch, uh, and my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca says, uh, where all my stuff exists, reviews and what have you. And you can also listen to my other podcasts, the Geek Buddies and the Hot Mic that are out there for you all to subscribe to as well. And I think that's it for this week. We will be back next time to conclude our exploration of the remarkable film, The Night of the Hunter, next time on The Cinephiles. 